Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. You're listening to Getting to the Point, the business reinvention podcast from Big Small. In this series, we hear inspiring stories from those who've cut through complexity and confusion to redefine their brands and businesses. Today, we're talking to Ali Owen, founder of Brixton Finishing School. For the last six years, Ali's been on a mission to change how marketing, advertising and communication industries recruit entry-level talent. It's been a remarkable story, but before we get to that, Ali's keen for everyone to know her surname absolutely does not have an S on the end of it. Well, welcome, Ali Owen. Yeah, let's get that out there for everybody. Let's uh, make sure everyone knows that you're Ali Owen. No Owens, get that S off your website, the drum. Mm. And I thought a really good place to start would be with your initial drive and motivation for setting up Brixton Finishing School. And I wondered whether it was a sliding doors moment, a particular incident, or whether it was a, a bubbling frustration inside you at a need to change the industry. I think it was an accumulation of experiences, both witnessed and personally experienced. Coupled with the fact I'm a single parent, my door had hit 11. So I had the ability not to pay the second mortgage that is London childcare at the same time. Because lots of people have amazing ideas, but I was lucky in the sense that I stopped paying the equivalent of an arm and a leg to somebody to look after my child while I work full time. So I could take a risk. Okay, so so it was partly the personal freedom of not having to pay for childcare. That's what you're saying. That your daughter was a bit older, so you were able to think about doing something different. Yeah, definitely. And so, had you been thinking about doing it for a while then, and then that gave you the freedom to actually pursue it? When I was a teenager, I was an activist. Yeah, as most teenagers are. But this was back in the 80s. So I was very much, I was on the poll tax riots. I was, you know, very active in social justice. But being socially mobile, when I joined the industry, one thing I learned quite quickly was if you're not part of the majority, don't stick your head above the parapet. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. And was that from personal experience? Did you can, Can you tell us about that a bit? What kind of things inform that yeah I always felt as if I was in the industry by some trick which I probably was and I was always very conscious that I was going to have to work a bit harder than other people one because I was female two because I hadn't had uh, the kind of class-based advantages that a lot of my colleagues had had so you were definitely from a background point of view I mean obviously I'm Caucasian which gives me a lot of privilege but I'm also neurodiverse as well So it's kind of like I always felt as if, yeah, you were never going to fit in and you were only as good as yesterday's work. So it's a slightly different mindset, that mindset of surviving rather than thinking this is your right. So where was that coming from then? Was that coming from your observations of not seeing people like you within the workplace you were in? Or was it coming also from the way you were being treated and the way that people were responding to you within that workplace yeah I think there's a mixture of two things number one you have to remember gender I mean obviously still we've got huge challenges now but in the 90s when I joined the industry for example when I joined a big national newspaper it was 60 men and three females on the floor of which I was one and it was open warfare on those women so you know you could say what you wanted to them 
it was all just bants. And you obviously knew as soon as you were going to have a child or something, you were doubly, doubly effed. From a class point of view, I thought that I was as equal to everybody else because that's one advantages of my mind. It tends to be quite binary. So I was like, yay, I've worked extra hard. I've had to do extra work to get here. So to be honest, I'm probably better than you guys because I've had to work a lot harder <laughs> to achieve yeah. this and also to cling on to it. Sorry, but, you know, I haven't had an easy ride in. But what I discovered through comments, you know, sometimes people leak how they actually see you. And obviously, as a Caucasian, it's rare for us to experience discrimination. But class discrimination is really interesting because obviously a lot of it's unsaid. It's just a decision that's made that you're culturally not right on certain accounts, etc., but occasionally they'll come out and actually say it to your face. Um, so an example of that, two examples that sum up. Again, I was on a very big newspaper and I'd arranged a meeting with a fashion client, high fashion client. It was my meeting. I took a colleague very, very well to do a colleague with me. And as we went to enter the meeting, there was a couple of us going from my business. Um, she checked to see if my bag was fake because obviously I was the type of person who'd be buying a fake luxury bag from the market. Uh, right. uh, didn't check anybody else's. And you're like, yeah, oh my yeah, God. Yeah. This is, you know, yeah, completely undermine me. And then my favourite one is a lady that went to school, same school as Prince Charles, or King Charles, as I should say. We're dealing with this level of difference. Um, and she joined the team I was on. She just didn't say, she wouldn't speak to me for the first week. It was literally like, just didn't looked in shock every time I opened my mouth. Bear in mind, I think I'm quite posh. Like, you know, 30 years in the industry has tempered my accent. I can pass. I thought I was passing anyway. Turns out I wasn't at all. And I said, you know, to one of my colleagues, again, very posh colleague, why isn't X speaking to me? She went, oh, Ali, she's never met anybody like you before. <laughs> right. So what was beautiful in that moment was I suddenly realised that I was the token socially mobile person. But also, it was entirely my problem. <laughs> yeah. This lack of acceptance, this lack of a lack of just equity, or you know, I was, you know, oh gosh, of course she's not going to speak to you, darling. Not a class. So clearly, the having those kind of formative experiences um, yourself, yeah, it must have been something that because because it wasn't like you you started Brixton finishing school sort of on the back of that. You know, it took some time for you to get to the point. I suppose in your life, as you said, to be able to do it. Well, to be able to afford to do it. Yeah, yeah, you have to. And also, it's a big, huge leap. You know, I don't have any savings. I live still month to month. I'm the sole provider for my daughter. So we are talking about a seismic risk that was taken in me deciding to do it. Tell us about that then. Tell us about the um, what you had to weigh up when you were deciding to do it and the yeah the, those early stages of taking the leap I think you know we often talk on this podcast about um reinventing things but here it's definitely a case of totally inventing something from scratch yeah which is amazing so yeah tell us about making that that jump in those first few months well initially I I think I was just blinded it was quite lucky like when I get something a bit between the teeth I'm unstoppable in the sense that I can be very single-minded. It's now only six years later, do I reflect and think, bloody hell, what did you do? Blimey, can't believe you risked all that. But in my head, it was just going to happen. So the good thing about me is I have got, probably because of 
the, the challenges I've had, a huge amount of resilience in me. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that because it can be very tiring being this resilient. But one thing I've never been seen is the fact that I wouldn't ever be able to win. Despite all the evidence, the contrary, constantly, I somehow think that it is possible to do great things. One would argue that's a, that's a kind of percentage of insanity, but also that's what gets you to be able to, to stand by ideas like when we first I had the first had the idea for Brixton you know it was six years ago the narrative around DNI and the narrative around different communities was very very different it was a complete outlier of an idea but I wanted to do it it was a reaction to how I'd seen my community and my experiences exist it was a reaction to the fact that I understood that I'd had an amazing window of free education affordable housing yeah I'd climbed out of the hole and basically it's my duty to put the ladder down to make sure other people can. I mean, we've heard this before on the podcast from people who are entrepreneurial. So who've taken that leap. It's the, you know, the thing you're describing, which is, I mean, you, you said it yourself, you said you had no, I don't believe this to be true, but you said you'd got no particular reason to sort of back yourself it was against all the evidence. And I think mm. it is quite an entrepreneurial thing. Because if you if you sat down and looked rationally about setting up anything, you probably wouldn't do it because so many businesses fail. Oh. So so if you did it logically, you'd probably never take the leap at all. So te- entrepreneurs tend to be, you know, the people we've spoken to, they tend to be people who who have that almost blind belief against the evidence that they're just going to succeed. So it sounds like that that's partly what drove you as well. Yeah, I remember it was 8th of March. We're coming up to an anniversary about six years ago. And... I'd had the idea, I'd managed to go around some agencies with a hand-drawn logo. <laughs> Always good to start with a logo. <laughs> Literally. But somebody had given me some money. And I realised, partly because my view, I'd obviously not, you know, one thing I always tried to do was be really good at honouring deals I'd done in business. So people were like, oh, God, just give us, you know, give us something. But I remember sort of like lying awake that night, having massive anxiety, knowing that I had to then do this thing. And I thought, well, what's the one thing I can optimise? Well, I can get rid of doubt. If I get rid of doubt, then I won't be, you know, I can just power on. So I just decided, and this does sound, you know, completely disassociative. I just decided to have no doubt anymore. And woke up that morning and in my head, Brixton was already built. Since then, everything we've done, so we launched a national school called the Academy, we launched a big schools program called Venture. In my head, these things are already, well, they, when we launched them, they were already built and successful. And I just acted as if they were. And bizarrely, that seemed to be the magic formula because people found that really easy to buy into. It removed any need for me to have any wobbles, thus reduced the time I was focused on making them manifest and it just made my sense of yeah if you have no doubt in what you're doing the doing becomes a lot easier yeah and I think also you you clearly had a a very clear vision for what you wanted to achieve and I yeah. think I think you know that <laughs> yeah. helps I think if you if you put the sort of stake out in front of where a company or a business or an organization is and say this is where we're going this is what we're going to do it's much easier for people to think about how they might help with that or support with it rather than a, a vague ambition or a vague goal to 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 achieve something so yeah i can see why that would um 
why that would work for you. Just just tell tell us a bit about Brixton Finishing School because some of the people listening, you know, probably everyone in the industry has heard of it, but they might not know exactly what it is. And just yeah, how do you describe it? I describe it as a change making and social mobility engine. So it's actually now an umbrella for multiple programs designed to change the blend of people within the industry. So it's more equitable. Obviously, we know having everybody represented in the industry means we make better work and lots more money, if that's your thing. Uh, So Brixton does lots of outreach nationally. We're a national program to connect with communities that would not consider this as a career or not have access to it does amazing events and tasters and experiences, sucks talent into this this kind of classic marketing funnel, gives it free training opportunities, all of which are delivered by our industry partners. So it's very much a change-making system that works internally on companies in the industry because they contribute time and effort and learnings, and externally by those learnings and the effort put in affecting the outcomes of communities that are normally extremely underserved we do go through the training and then we place that talent initially at our partners they get first pick but obviously that then feeds the wider industry and we do like there's schools which is 14 to 19 selling advertising marketing tech as a career then there's the academy which is open to everybody aged 18 to 30 in our audiences nationwide and brixton is in person that's london 18 to 25 And then we have a partnership with the Uninvisibility Project for Visible Start, which is uh, women over 45, which is backed by WPP. Um, And more more in the pipeline, more to come. I mean, it's incredible how much you've done already in those six years because you've got initiative after initiative there. Is is that part of the challenge for you now? Is it, you know, there's so much going on? Because where where did you start? Was it Brixton Finishing School, the summer school? Was Was that the starting point for this? And then you've kind of added the initiatives on from there? Yeah, so 2018, it was the first Brixton, it was 24 students. And then 2019, we had 36 students. And then 2020, we obviously know that COVID hit. And for me, that was like a call to arms. So I think COVID, we went into lockdown. I think it was March 23rd. I may have got that wrong, but it was the day our outdoor poster campaign delivered pro bono by Clear Channel broke across the nation. So nobody saw my ads apart from one guy I'd been on a very unsuccessful date with. Well, I thought it was unsuccessful. Phoned me up to congratulate me on my ads. And I was like, we're just gone into lockdown. Anyway, that aside, I was reading The Guardian and Polly Toynbee in The Guardian had said uh, about a week after the lockdown started that one in three graduate jobs were going to go. And I thought, well, if that's the graduates, I mean, we deal with graduates and non-graduates. That's like a tip of an eye. That's like a flashing light that means the communities who have less are going to suffer more. So I phoned up the campaign and in a true example of manifesting, just announced that I was going to launch a national school called the Ad Academy which is a very quickly made up name, taking the word advertising and obviously using a school term. And it was going to be free, national and virtual and basically offer opportunity during COVID. And that kind of kick-started our growth. And then a wonderful lady called Yasmin Orego, who used to be digital director of campaign and then was at Bullfoldings and Amplify, came to us and said, do you want to do like a school's thing? And I was like, we call it adventure. And now it's called Adventures in Advertising. And then I also, I started getting approached by more and more people with great ideas. 
So it's been a real balance because I have ADHD and I love a great idea. And also, I'm quite good at making great ideas happen, it turns out, due to the fact I can see how it would happen. I don't see why it wouldn't happen. I just see how you could make it happen. I think that's the kind of special source. Though I obviously have people on my team who tell me exactly why things may not happen now. <laughs> well, you've got to be careful not to listen too much, don't you, as the entrepreneur? You have to <laughs> listen I to the listen. right things. Yeah. Do you know what? I do, one of my skills is actually knowing I'm not be all and end all, basically. I know that I'm, I'm good at being Ali. I'm not necessarily good at being anything else. And the world is made up of lots of different types of brilliant people. So definitely listen. And I'm very lucky. I've got a big advisory board. I've got some brilliant trustees and a great team. And the thing about the team is we could not be more different thinkers than people on that team. I've got, you know, some really cautious. I've got the polar opposite of me. I've got, you know, it's really, really good. And I think that's probably why we've been so successful is the fact that a we live our values but b not having the ego to think that you know best i don't know best i had a great idea it was bloody minded it worked but i'm happy to work with lots of other people with great ideas but also i kind of know what i'm good at and i also know where the business would not appreciate me getting involved in <laughs> okay. we've 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 talked quite a lot you know, you've explained very clearly the, I suppose, the overview of Brixton Finishing School and the initiatives. But I'm also interested in some of the personal stories. Oh. I did read that one of the people who'd been through the school said, Brixton Finishing School has completely changed my life, which oh. first of all must be incredibly satisfying to read things like that and work with work with those people but tell us some of the personal stories some of the differences you've made on an individual basis to people who've been through your organization so I think the number one thing we do is we create equity if you've always had too much challenge your confidence is going to be knocked yeah and you're going to internalize maybe that your lack of progress is not structural but it's you and can I say that's BS? Mostly it is structural. Otherwise, we wouldn't be so successful. So there's some brilliant examples. So one of my favourite who has actually gone on to win a DNAD Youngblood black pencil, the hardest to win, is Holly Killen. Holly, we met, I think she was 2019, and she was just brilliant. But she, you know, just never, you know, never thought about getting into advertising she was great on the course. Then she got a job where she saved up to be able to afford to living costs while she won a scholarship to the SCA, which is an amazing advertising school. And we have a scholarship program with them. And now she's won the black pencil. She's done placements at Mother. You know, she's been all around. And in fact, I'm taking her to Cannes this summer. And that is just, you know, I would say, and this is about without her talent, number one, her talent, but two, the opportunity that we and our industry colleagues have created for that talent to actually get in, that wouldn't have happened. So it's not like it's just up to us. Yes, we've created the kind of portal in, but you have to still have the talent to walk through. But that's amazing. And I've got a wonderful, you know, we tend to try and employ from our alumni. So one of my... My team members is Chris. She used to be a nail tech. She's from the same part of London I am. 
and she's now our partnerships account manager. She did she won a year at KFC and we poached her to be community manager and she's just moving into a partnerships role. And that again, it was classic, you know, would have never got in, never got in. And so last year we placed 142 people despite the crappy market near the end due to the cost of living and recession. You know, the target this year is 300. And all of those people most likely would have not got in, not because of their talent, but because of the way our industry entrance points are structured and weighted not in their favour. What has it taught you? So, I mean, it's been the biggest learning curve of my life, definitely. So I was born in the 70s. So that's last millennia to the people who are young and listening. I think we started our careers in the same year looking on LinkedIn. Did we? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 94. Yeah. Yeah. So from a personal point of view, the 70s, if you were a child of the 70s, a white child of the 70s, your programming by society was very colonial, pretty racist, to be honest. You know, you probably didn't think you were racist, but the world you were living in was. Um, very, very, very sexist, very homophobic. That's the world you were born into. And I think most people from my decade have gone on a journey of learning. And I've had the absolute privilege of being able to do that learning in depth, like to gain a much better understanding of different people's experiences, to spend time. Most people don't get the chance to really spend quality time with people from different communities and backgrounds and ages as well, you know. And I've had the blessing of being able to do that. It has enriched my life from a personal point of view and also, you know, my mental health and everything amazingly. Also, I've learned from setting up and running a business, I've learned a lot about burnout, (laughs) debt, stress. (laughs) But I've also, you know, survived all of that and come out the other end. So I probably say I'm really enjoying this year because yeah I'm 51 this year and I can't believe I've got a job I love that's working that's helping people and I've got enough money to live on as in I'm able to pay some of my debt back and you know you know we live month to month but I'm I'm going to get to the end of the month that's not a problem I know that which is a very weird feeling (laughs) (laughs) as a single parent you're just like wow look at me But also just the fact that we've got something that's, you know, when I set this up, it was just me. And now, and I I don't want to sound flippant, I think it's hundreds of people's thing. So all our industry supporters, like Big Small, have been a massive supporter of us. You know, I'm just the people that are now loving us and helping us and representing us and advocating for us. It just feels so just amazing to have that. And it feels like you're not alone. You're listening to Getting to the Point, the business reinvention podcast from Big Small. I'm going to take a sort of slight sort of swerve because I'm interested in also the business side of it. You talked a little bit about the business and I think people listening will be interested to know a little bit more about that. So, you know, how many people are you? How does the funding work? How does the money sort of flow around the organization? Um, are you for profit? Are you trying to grow it and float it on the NASDAQ in five? What's the what's the sort of business side of this? Yeah, so we're a community interest company, which is a not-for-profit. 
and we are launching a charitable arm this year. So essentially, being a CIC gives me a lot of flexibility. I still have to pay corporation tax. Why? I am a not-for-profit. How evil is that? Yeah. But we're going to launch Foundation Out as well. But basically, this, you know, I was very clear, you know, there's a lot, I've seen a lot of organisations, especially in apprenticeships, who are making money for shareholders. No, this is about our true stakeholders, which is the talent. So that's really important. So we are now, I would say, we have a really flexible working model. We're probably 12 to 15 people, which is big, I feel. Um, and we have three divisions. We have an outreach marketing division, programs division, and a partnerships division. Partnerships is obviously the driver. We're very lucky that we've got 54 industry partners that range from big brands like KFC, Kurt Geiger, Diageo, beautiful other brands like Edrington, etc. Then we have big agency groups like WPP and like lots of different amazing agencies and creative agencies who we love, like we have Amplify, Sarchies, etc. And then we have a lot of media owners and tech companies. So we do a lot of work around, for me, something like programmatic, which anybody can learn to do. If you're socially mobile, is a great way to get to actually being able to fall to London flat quite quickly. So those partners are, are they, are they funding you with a sort of annual contribution or are they paying for, how, how does it work? So it's a kind of subscription model. So you, you, there's various different levels, depending on there's like a, a kind of like smaller level where you get to play with various projects. So your staff can be involved in adventure and mentor and there's different levels. And obviously those levels go up and give you access to more staff as you're funding more staff. Some of our partners like Clear Channel and Normally have signed for five years. That's a big thing. You know, this is all about future-proofing us. If I have to go, if me and my team have to ask money every year from a market that is very volatile, that's quite traumatic. <laughs> so are you, are you getting any funding that's not coming from commercial organisations at the moment? We have a small, uh, well, not small, well, 15K coming from British land. And that's it. That's all. Yeah, I did what I was good at, which was sell. <laughs> sell the concept yeah and also as well for me it's a lot of amazing advocates all our partners they're just fantastic you know they supply the content which does the teaching they mentor they go into schools you know we are merely facilitators of this kind of industry-wide movement yeah over those six years looking back what what were the biggest barriers that you had to <laughs> smash through god money yeah, I remortgaged three times, which is very risky. I was working two jobs. Um, I would say, uh, first of all, you know, I was lack of belief in the audience, the talent. You know, when I first started out, some people would say things like, aren't they gang members? And I'd be like, oh, my God. Wow. They're just normal people that aren't allowed in the industry because you don't want normal people. That surprises me, actually, because I think... Not you know, at all. Why would it surprise... I mean, God. You well, know, no, just from my own experience, just because just I suppose my own experience of, of this is that generally people within the industry, of the people I know, so I don't know all the people in the industry, you know, I obviously don't know the yeah. people making those comments, but generally people are positive-minded, um, but are, are struggling to know how to affect change, yeah. which is, I think, why it's so brilliant what you've done is you've given the, the route and the avenue for people to make those changes. The other one was, are they going to be any good? As if you wouldn't ask that from a normal public school white kid 
is that kid going to be any good? But you think that's okay for a socially mobile white child or a multi-ethnic child. Why would they be any less good? It, the, the assumption was they had to prove that they weren't the negative things you thought they were, whereas you would never have that negative. It was like they always had, I always describe it, sometimes I felt like this as well, like most some people just walk into a meeting, I had to kind of somersault through 17 hoops before I was allowed to go into the meeting door because I had to do lots of proof points to show that I had a right to be in the room. And I think there's that. I would say that was 2018. 2020, COVID ripped out a lot of funding and that was an absolute test of metal, basically. You know, we did a crowdfunder, individuals put money in. I remortgaged again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> My family suggested that, that you know, that, that, and I was like, no, this is going to work. And that was amazing. We attracted like some amazing allies like Lockham Williams from Anomaly, where at the Academy curriculum and some big brands came on board. And obviously the other narrative of 2020 was the murders or the continuing murders in the States. And there was a surge of understanding around some of the structural challenges that are happening. Since then, more people have been interested. And I think what you said since 2020 about more people being willing, you know, just wanting a solution and having a better understanding has increased. I've definitely seen over six years in some parts of the industry, a much increased understanding of why this work is essential to our survival as an industry, but also from a social justice point of view. But I would also say Harvard Business Review shows that every company that said they were going to do something since you know, the murder of George Floyd in 2020, uh, only one in three have put any money behind it. So the wanting and the actual reality of investment are two very different things. So still a, a long way to go. And mm -hmm. I was interested in what you just said there about parts of the industry, and you don't need to name check different sectors, but do you, th do you think that? Do you think there are differences between the different areas of our industry? Do you observe differences? Okay, some companies still have all male white boards. You know, there's more people called Dave on the FTSE 100 than there are women, let alone any other thing. When we take a step back, because there's so much noise around this subject, we feel as if the work's being done. But when you step back into the figures, especially at mid to senior levels, that's when it gets problematic. So I wasn't suggesting that the problem had been solved. It was more, do you within, well, as you circle around creative industries, media industries, tech organisations, programmatic, do you, do you see differences within the different areas of the industry in terms of attitudes? I would say it's not by vertical. I would say it's by organisation. It's very much led by the senior leadership. You could have really, obviously, tech is even it's still quite backward because of the lack of investment in, in encouraging females to do computer sciences and that lot further down school and maths because of the misogyny they experience. Right. But I would say it's very much, it's not on a bit by bit basis. It's, on a who at the top is going to let is going to say this is a good thing to do and then obviously you'll have like-minded people joining different companies so if you're all what i would say a traditional company traditional being we like things the way we are you're probably going to attract a lot of or value people who present as that which means it will be very hard for somebody who doesn't present as that to want to stay or thrive.
Okay, so if someone's listening to this and thinking, wow, I have to get involved with the uh, Brixton Finishing School. Um, <laughs> Let's hope they do, after all this waffle from me. <laughs> far from waffle. What, what, do you, what do you need? What do you want people to do? How should they get involved? What's the website address? Um, tell us how people can get stuck in. First of all, just drop us a note at info at brixtonfinishingschool.org. Our website is www.brixtonfinishingschool.org. Um, yeah, or we're really easy to find on LinkedIn. Please feel free just to DM us, hit us up, ask us for anything. What's great is as well as being able to supply talent, we can help with retention of talent. We can also give your staff employee engagement opportunities. They can go and speak at schools. They can mentor. We all know that those kind of, you know, if you align your company with the kind of thing, social justice causes that your employees are interested in, you have a lot more productivity and just happier workforces as well. I mean, we'd love to hear from you. We're only as good as the sum of our parts and our partners are the key part. If someone's listening and they're the CEO of an ad agency, they can probably think of how to, you know, how that might fit in. But what if someone's listening and they're a brand manager in a in a great big company and they want to get involved or they're an account director and, uh, you know, they're not in the management of the agency, but they feel I've got something to contribute. I'd like to go and talk to a school or, you know, yeah. how can how can how could those people help you? Same thing. Just reach out. We can match you with schools and mentors. And also, if this was something you were passionate about, we can support you in advocating for it internally as well. So some of the biggest partnerships we've got have come from individuals who are not necessarily C-suite advocating for us. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. Do you know, I think the best thing is, is you're joining a community of quite like-minded change makers. And it's like being bathed in hope because you are seeing the work work. And so much of the stuff we do, you don't see a result from this. You're seeing a tangible scaling change every year. And that makes your life a lot more joyous. I think being bathed in hope is the perfect <laughs> place to end a podcast. So I'm going to say thank you so much, Alion, for coming on, sharing your story uh, on getting to the point. It's been inspirational an absolute pleasure to hear all about it and the very best of luck and you know certainly big small will be keen to support you on the next uh the next six years thanks so much for coming and talking to us thanks so much as well that was getting to the point if you would like to get to the point big small can help visit bigsmall.works and redefine your business in 12 weeks